0: Hello and welcome back to Everything Interesting Under the Sun. I'm your host, Ethan Clark. You may have noticed that I haven't uploaded any new episodes in a while, and that's because I was off exploring the world. For the past two months, I was on a solo backpacking trip through South America. Now that I'm back, it's time to get started right where I left off. I will try to release new episodes every couple of weeks with more interesting and unique guests. To get us started again, in this episode, we have Dr. Deborah Neal joining us. Deborah is a history professor at Arizona State University, where she focuses her research on religious and ethnic conflicts throughout history. Enough of the introduction, here's my conversation with Dr. Deborah Neal. You are listening to Everything Interesting Under the Sun. Welcome to the podcast, Doctor Neil. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's get started. Uh, right off the bat, I want to give you some heavy-hitting questions. In terms of history, and all throughout history, mm-hmm. who is the most evil figure, in your opinion?
1: Um, well, there's some really good candidates. Um, Hitler and Stalin, for one. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot. Um, I guess I I would go with Hitler because. Hitler, three things. One, the sheer number of human beings that uh, he killed, or is responsible for killing. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly, in comparison to Stalin, Hitler killed approximately um, 11 million, according to our best estimates. And then for the Soviet Union under Stalin, not with Lenin, just Stalin, it's between six and nine million. Um, Also because Hitler started the war, World War II. It's his war. Um, I think though though most importantly is the Holocaust, right? Uh, Genocide is such a, one of the worst human crimes um, that there is. And so, and just the the evilness of his whole um, ideological project and not just against Jews but you know ultimately the Jews were the top of the evil for him and but they were only part of it so his whole ideology the racist ideology and the extermination that he had planned for not just the Jews but the Slavs and and others so it's so I think Hitler's really up there Yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: so if I'm not mistaken when I took your class I I knew much more about Hitler than I did Stalin, but yeah. what I learned about Stalin is that like he's pretty comparable to what Hitler has done. But also, if I remember correctly, Hitler had more of like a, a motive behind what he was doing, whereas Stalin was kind of just like desiring power very much, and he need, like he needed to stay in that position. Is that how it actually happened, or is my memory failing? That I, I honestly don't. No, remember. that's
1: um, it's pretty close. I mean Stalin was a true believer in communism but he was also uh, vengeful and vindictive both of them were, to to be honest, usually authoritarian leaders are. It's one of their traits, one of their many horrible traits that they have. Um, And, you know, he really believed, um, for example, that the Ukrainians right, it was a plot to undermine his utopian world that he was trying to create so he does seem to genuinely believe that and he's such a horrible human being and he grew up in a violent place in a violent household um so violence was something and death was something that he's very familiar with it was a tool so he thought nothing about it and both of them are operating on on a an ends justify the means mentality and he very much was in that camp um but it's it's disturbing, though, that he could so easily kill his friends. Um, Hitler, he killed Rom, um, and he seemed really upset about it. This isn't to say that Hitler's a good person. But I mean, he's different in this aspect. And after that, those who stayed loyal to him, I mean, uh, Goebbels, Göring, Himmler, they all um, made it alive. He never, you know, even if when they messed up, right? Is they remain loyal and Hitler remained loyal to them. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a distinction. Um, so I, I think you're, you're you're sort of right because Stalin was so obsessed with people that he thought had wronged him and were ruining this thing that he was trying to to build, um, and he just ruthlessly just exterminated these people, right? Right. not for race because of a that they were. Um, ethnic, um, enemies, right? They were, or or racial enemies, but because they were enemies of the people, enemies who were counter-revolutionary, right? Who were destroying this project of creating this utopian vision.
0: Do you think that, for instance, Hitler's delusion of that Jews are this is what he is, his perception is, like the scum of the earth and mm-hmm. the the gum on the bottom of your feet, whatever. like Do you think this delusion should lessen his evilness, or do you think it adds to it?
1: Well, he certainly wasn't the only anti-Semite. Um, but I doubt if there had been a different authoritarian leader, that the final solution would have been the extermination of Jews, all the Jews of Europe. So he's unique. I mean, even though that plan, you know, evolved as things, advanced, it wasn't from, he didn't have that idea from the beginning. Um, He did have an idea of getting Jews out of Germany, um, but it expanded as as time um, went on. Um, So he's unique in his solution.
0: Yeah. yeah, but he didn't do it alone. So, do you think? I mean, hypothetically, do you think if we were to re- have removed Hitler, a similar kind of course would have taken, or been taken by Germany? Germany
1: probably most likely would have had an authoritarian government. Um, even the one that he made a coalition with in the uh, the conservative uh, government, um, with Papen as vice chancellor, Hindenburg as president, and then most of the cabinet they were conservatives. Um, other than Göring and, and Frick, um, on that cabinet, they had planned an authoritarian... They were authoritarians. They weren't fascist in the same way that he had... He had a more radical fascist plan. There was, um, But they still were authoritarians and monarchists. So, and they did want to create an authoritarian government. They were done with democracy. Um, and the time was ripe. It was... Democracies are very vulnerable, and and Germany was very vulnerable. Um, however, if it hadn't been for the Great Depression, which sent the Nazis' numbers to their highest, which was 37%, which is the most they, they gained, but they became the largest party. Right? It was a parliamentary mm-hmm. system, um, which gave Hitler the power then to demand that he become chancellor. And Hindenburg, in the end, after... Lots of negotiation and saying, no, he he got what he wanted because of his popularity. He was able to do it. Um, So if there hadn't been a Hitler, they would have needed another strong man. Because under those circumstances is when, particularly when democracies are vulnerable to the people looking to a strong man to solve the problems and fix things.
0: In Hitler's cabinet, was there any other people, like a strong man, that they could have used?
1: Um, well, there were a lot of wannabes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Papen would have probably loved to have been that strong man. He's, he didn't have the charisma or the character or the uh, political chops that, that Hitler did. Hitler understood how to manipulate um, people and use propaganda to his advantage. And the masses, right? A lot of the conservatives weren't as good at uh, rallying the masses. right? Fascist movements are, mas- are mass movements, mm. right? You, um, it's, it's a populist movement to rally the masses behind you. Um, and so a lot of the conservatives weren't skilled in that. But they probably would have ended up, um, him, um, Hindenburg probably would have appointed someone and then they would have gotten rid of the parliament. Um, and they would have ended up with some kind of authoritarian government. Um, but would they have went in the path of the Holocaust or even World War II? Most Germans didn't want it at the time. That was an obsession of Hitler's. Yeah.
0: So. so you touched on this a little bit already about the attributes of an authoritarian dictator. What constitutes, like not that I'm interested in this yeah. at all, but what constitutes a successful uh, dictator? Like, what traits do they need to have?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you don't want to... Put that <laughs> yeah, to I got <laughs> yes. No, but everyone should know because they should be able to, to recognize some of the, the traits. Um, they're usually a, a populist type uh, of leader and to, that appeals to um, the masses and present themselves as a strong man who's going to fix things. Like, you know, saying, I alone can fix this. Um, is is a key. Um, but they're also, they're demagogues, right? They play on people's fears, um, hatreds, emotions, prejudices. That's how you get the mass movement, and you, you rally these masses behind you. Um, and then you present yourself as the person who can fix it, and they, that you're strong. Um, they're also very narcissistic, um, which is a, a trait of strong men. Um, they present themselves as both of the people, but also as a superior human being, a Superman, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why they can fix things. So they never make mistakes, right? They will never admit to mistakes. They don't compromise. Um, um, And then they also appeal to the masses as being one of them. And so Hitler, uh, he was absurd to a lot of germans i mean because is i don't know if you've heard one of his speeches it's very theatrical like uh, yeah bad. i've, try, I've like, tried watching
0: it's very entertaining although yeah. i have no idea what's happening but yeah. it's very yeah. entertaining and i if like obviously this is not the conventional belief but i'm sure a majority of people if they were to be in that scenario with mm-hmm. like in germany when this was happening a lot of people would have followed along like Everybody wants to be like, oh, if I was there, I would have stopped it myself. No, and you probably wouldn't have. Been like, yeah, right. All these right. people were here for a reason, and I'm sure, like, right. Groupthink is going to play its part, even in the modern day as well.
1: Yeah, well, that's why if you if you read Mein Kampf, um, I'm not recommending, <laughs> um, but he he explains why these mass rallies, and it's for exactly that reason. Right, you kind of you do things in a with a mass of people that you won't do uh, individually. Um, and plus you're speaking, you're using emotion, not reason, you're bypassing reason, and you appeal to people's um, emotion, um, and not in just his, the way he speaks, Um, you know, he starts slow and gradually builds, Um, he keeps things simple, he tells people what they want, um, which is key, like, you know, Hitler said, one, I'm gonna fix things, um, but here's who's to blame for all your woes, right? Um, Jews or the the stab in the back, Versailles Treaty. Like he has all of this stuff that, that gives the, the people an explanation, a simple explanation for why they're in this situation. And then he comes across so genuine, right? He, you know, his anger and he sweats and... You know he's using hands and um, he's like screeching and yeah and it looks really authentic, although he practiced. He mm-hmm. was really it, it was a it was a show. Right? He knew exactly what he was doing, but it looked like it was improv, right? And that he was just so passionate and cared so much about Germany, and um, that people believed him. He came across as authentic. Yeah, which is a skill that not every Dictator has, including Putin.
0: So you you think like where like, in terms of obviously there's there's not much of a comparison between Hitler, Stalin, and Putin. But like, what traits do you think Putin has that is shared between Hitler and Stalin, and what does okay. he lack that like, or, yeah, just what what, is, what traits do you share between all of them?
1: Well, Putin's not the orator, which you probably you know if you think about it, like, oh, I don't remember seeing any speeches of yeah, him, exactly. right? Exactly. Um what does he do? He he presents himself in as a strong man as he's wrestling bears, right? Tigers and judo and all that and, judo all that. and right and he so he's doing all of these things to show his that he's one of the supermen and that he's strong. Um and that he's vanquishing all of their enemies, right? The, of of Russia, right? First Chechnya and, and Muslims and, and gays and uh, the gay agenda and gay ideology and so, so he's protecting the people and enemies internal and external and he's proved it um, but then he has the propaganda and, and showing himself in being a superior human being doing all these things and he's so masculine and a strong man and, um, he's not an orator and he can't um, yeah he could never pull that kind of charisma mm-hmm. off
0: it's funny, So every every time I see, like, a picture of Putin, po- or not every time, but, like, yeah. a lot of times when he's, like, in a masculine scenario, he has yeah. his shirt off, and he's, yeah. just, like, flexing, and it's very yeah. funny when you're saying, like, the strong, hand, the strong man, that's exactly that's what they're playing towards.
1: Yes, it's exactly what he's doing. And it, it works. Mm-hmm. And so Stalin is in a similar position. Well, he's not taking off his shirt. <laughs> <No. and laughs> you wouldn't want Stalin to do that. Um, but Stalin's not appealing to the mass audience, right? He has to appeal to... um, the leaders of the Bolshevik party right particularly after Lenin um, dies so these are high up um, members and members of the general committee Um, so it's not the people and so his skill was presenting himself as someone who wasn't seeking power but someone that was uh, genuinely concerned about Lenin's legacy and about their project and communist project and he was humble. He mostly wouldn't talk. He would only stand up and present himself as someone who's not interested in power or for power's sake. And so he played this role. And he also got lucky because Trotsky, his main rival, who was a fantastic orator, and right. could move the masses. So Stalin can't do that. Um, they didn't like him, so he was a threat. So Stalin seemed he was genuine. Mm-hmm. Again, so another characteristic to pretend that you're genuinely working for whoever that audience is. Um, usually it's a mass audience, so the people. Yeah.
0: Right. Do you think these evil figures like Hitler, Stalin, Putin, and all them, do you think they have an innate sense of hatred or is this just bred into them? The, uh, serv- or not uh, like bred into them in the their cause of luck or not luck but like the what I don't know what the word yeah. for,
1: but. well. Hitler grew up in an environment that's very uh, anti-Semitic. Um, not necessarily in his childhood. It seems that he, he got that later in Vienna when he went to Vienna. He was exposed to it, but he was exposed early on to this idea of pan-Germanism. Right. And nationalism was on the rise and, you know, ethnic nationalism is exclusive. Right. So like Germans are, he was steeped in this world of German superiority. Um, And a big part of it was anti-Semitic, but also there was another hierarchy, Um, the racism that was there. So even the Slavs are inferior, Um, gypsies, et cetera, every, you know, he has this category of the worst. Of course, Jews are, are at the top, and then you get to the Slavs, and then in, underneath that, you have like the uh, the French and the Italians and the Japanese and some of the Asian. Um, so he had a, a set um, hierarchy. So he was he was born into that world. Now, what made him? It appealed to him. Um, Well, he was early on interested in Pan-Germanism. He was already fixated and loved Wagner's plays and, you know, this kind of heroism in there and already this nationalism and was implicit into it. And that was something that appealed to him. And then World War II, when they lost, he was angry and upset. And then he had this job where he had to... um, This is where he learned that he had this skill of speaking to train um, the, the soldiers as they got out of the army to, um, was propaganda and indoctrination basically, it wasn't overtly anti-Semitic, um, but it was there and also to um, train them, you know, to in to hate communism and, and everything associated with it, right? So it was, He had to learn all of that and then go teach it to these soldiers to make sure that when they got out of the thing, they would not go into one of the the left parties, right? So it's to make them radical nationalists and indoctrinated into a racist ideology. And so all of the things that were happening then, you know, and the the stab-in-the-back myth and that the Jews are the ones who created, um, overthrew the government and ended the war and got them out of, of the war. They would have won if they could have kept fighting and all, hmm. all of that. It was a really, it was an explanation that was appealing to him. And it seems that's where he's really started to become a rabid anti-Semite. Uh, so I think it was a, a narrative that clicked with him.
0: Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. I find it very interesting how both Hitler and Stalin were not... Like Hitler was not born in in germany and stalin was not born russian mm-hmm. and how they came to be the leaders of those respective countries mm-hmm. i find that very fascinating like, how does that come to be why mm-hmm. like i'm just thinking in terms of the u.s like nobody would ever elect a president i mean you, you can't do that mm-hmm. like a president that's not from the u.s so why did like the general consensus like allow the non-native german or non-native russian yeah. to be the president mm-hmm. or the, the well, austrians or are
1: germans so not in the german state mm. And even for the settlement of after World War I, the Germans wanted... So the idea was every uh, nation a state, right? and, it was, and the idea of self-determination. Um, but when they drew the maps, they didn't actually draw them in that way. They wanted to make sure Germans didn't, again, start another war. And so you, you split the Austrians, who were ethnic Germans. The majority of Austrians were ethnic Germans. You had Hungarians and others in there, but they were minorities. So the, he's an ethnic German, mm-hmm. um, and so that's why right? he's he can do it in that situation. Now it's different in the uh, the Soviet Union and the the Bolsheviks because it's not race is irrelevant and communism. It's a universal like, and all you know, workers of the world unite. It's so it's irrelevant where they came from. Um, and was really no part. Now, although Trotsky being a former Jew, right, he wasn't a practicing Jew, but to everyone else they thought he was a Jew. Um, that was to his detriment, um, and so some of the others. So anti-Semitism played a role in that, but in the ideology, there's nothing, it's it's anti-racist. Yeah. Right, so the, the fact that he came f- um, from Georgia mattered but none at all, right? And he wasn't elected; he was put in charge by the this the general committee, right? These mm. the leaders of this movement, yeah. Oh,
0: I guess that makes sense. I I, I, yeah. saw, I did not know like prior to World War One, Austria was that a part of Germany, or were they like combined?
1: Well, Austria had been part of it; had been under the uh, um, the Holy Roman Empire, and so Germany didn't exist until 1871. So it had been the Holy Roman Empire, parts of Austria had been part of it, and then you had all these German states and principalities and um, smaller... There was no Germany. It didn't e- exist. It was under this Holy Roman emperor who didn't have a lot of power, wasn't the most powerful emperor, but he was elected. There were electors that elected him, and so those states and principalities and, um, within the Holy Roman Empire... They actually had a lot of power, um, and so even when united Germany, there was a lot of still seeing Bavarians, you know, seeing the um, Prussians as foreigners and enemies. I mean, but they're all ethnic Germans. But when the after World War One, there was a pan-German movement that wanted to bring all Germans one nation, one state so the Germans should get their own state and that would include the the Austrians because they're ethnically Mm. German Um, but the way they drew the lines not just in that case but in other cases um, didn't follow that principle Hitler exploited that because then he could say oh then Czechoslovakia right um, has all these ethnic Germans and Sudetenland and he says we're just protecting the Germans there and then gives him an excuse to take that and from there he went for all of Czechoslovakia but it was just an excuse but anyway that he exploited uh, all of that does that make sense yeah, yeah, yeah. That,
0: that definitely I learned something new today I did yeah. not know that yeah. but um yeah moving forward a little bit what what revolution around the world do you think has been the most impactful and beneficial f- to us in the modern day
1: um the revolutions that I'm I study and know <laughs> the Glorious Revolution in the 17th century England um, the American Revolution the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution and there were other revolutions there were the 1848 revolutions they were the, the Greek Revolution there were others but those are the the big ones that I'm assuming that you would uh, those are the ones I'm assuming mm, that yeah. would be impactful I uh, the one, I, the French Revolution is probably the most important one. At, you know, the American Revolution, they're, they're related, in many ways, sister revolutions. Um, not only because the French paid for and fought and helped the, um, the Americans win the, the war, um, and then bankrupted France, which led to the French Revolution, which is a long, complicated story. Um, so they are related... Um, and you have Lafayette, figures like Lafayette, who's an American hero of the American Revolution, and then he came back and he was part of the French um, Revolution. Um, so they shared lots of the ideas, and Jefferson was there, Franklin was, was there. Well, F- Franklin left before the, the Revolution started, but Jefferson was there, and he worked with Lafayette on the uh, Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen and using the modeling on the... Um, Virginia Declaration uh, of Rights. Um, They altered it quite a bit because they had to compromise. It was a lot more conservative. Um, But the French Revolution was in the heart of Europe, and and America was still somewhat of a backwater, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But the ideals of the American Revolution were shared with the French Revolution, although things went quite awry for A series of of issues one being the war which was just silly why they thought they could fight all of Europe is beyond me it was just a really stupid thing to do but it it went uh, uh, awry and but those ideals I think are probably more important and influential to the benefit of us you know liberty equality fraternity right The, the ideals of the Enlightenment they both that they shared, even though in the end they were rejected during the terror, but still the ideals inspired people, and in the American and the, the French yeah. case, okay. yeah.
0: You mentioned the Glorious Revolution, I've actually never heard of that one. Do you mind sharing a little bit about it?
1: Yeah, that's um, so England, it was 1688, um, which is really important because of the Stuarts. So Queen Elizabeth I dies, and she doesn't have a hair. It's the Tudor dynasty. So that's how we end up with the Stuarts, and uh, James I came from Scotland. And so he's James Seventh of Scotland. His mother is Mary Queen of Scots. Um, so he becomes the English king. Um, and the Stuarts, to, to summarize that whole um 17th century under the the Stuarts, and that's when the Civil War and the brief um, uh, Republic under Cromwell, that was a disaster, and then they restored the monarchy. So you have two Stuarts in the early part of the 17th century. You have the in um, the in-between the interregnum, where you have Cromwell and the Puritan Republic that was pretty tyrannical in many ways and then they restored the monarchy, and you have Charles II, and then his brother after that, James II. The problem within it is one, they were, they saw themselves as divine right kings. And so the Whigs, in opposition to them, who wanted them to be um, probably what was never true about the monarchs of, of England, um, but, but they saw them as tyrannical more so than all of the other English kings. And then they would talk about the Magna Carta, and the rights of Englishmen, and they're violating the rights of Englishmen. And then you add on top of that the layer of their Catholic... Um, but James was explicitly Catholic, and had a Catholic wife, and if they when they had the son, they had a Catholic son. And the Whigs, they weren't going to accept it, because it's, it's now established Protestant nation, right? And so that was not going to happen, so what they did is they invited William of, of, of Orange, um, who was married to James the Sext- second's daughter, but they were Mary, who were Protestant, said, so, will you come and uh, become our king and queen, but you have to sign this document. It's the Declaration of Rights, and they become a, a constitutional monarchy. And that becomes an important model in the American Revolution. If you look at the, the English Declaration of Rights of um, 1689, you'll see similarities. They plagiarized in some cases. Yeah. So it's really important. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I actually never heard of that either before. But yeah, when you were explaining that explaining that to me, I felt like I needed to have like a piece of paper to connect all these individuals together to actually get a yeah, an idea yeah, of yeah, it. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I know it's it's complicated. Yeah. yeah. It's Always. kinda like the Game yeah. of Thrones, if you ever watch that there's yeah, so many yeah, characters yeah. to connect.
0: Yeah. Uh, moving forward into the current day now, do you think that the United States is it's ever like it's do you think the United States has the ability to ever fall into an authoritarian government?
1: Oh, absolutely. Every democracy is vulnerable to becoming an authoritarian government. Um, the founders tried to prevent that, you know, with the checks and balances and other Schemes that they had, um, yeah. Uh, democracies are always vulnerable to demagogues. Um, that and demagogues, you know, they appeal to people's when when things are not going so well, or or for a particular group in particular, um, when they feel insecure, things are unstable. Um, demagogues can get a foot. Um, We've had demagogues throughout our history. Usually they have been blocked from ever becoming president, especially because the parties would nominate. Um, but now the parties don't and have control over that. And so you have someone, Trump, who wants to be an authoritarian. Um, he, you know, it's, he's obviously a demagogue and would love to. He tried to retain his power in January 6th. He tried a lot harder than most of us realized, and we're just now learning um, about it, but democracies are always vulnerable to um, becoming authoritarians and also a democracy isn't something that you have or don't have Right? it's, it's something, it's on a scale of um, you can have more or less democracy and we've been undergoing democratic backsliding for even before Trump. So that's been on the, in the works for, for quite some time. And so we are part of the global trend that we're seeing, you know, uh, Hungary and, and Poland and Brazil and uh, Erdogan in Turkey, you know, Putin, of course. And I mean, we could just go on with the, the list.
0: You mentioned the democracy being uh, very fragile. What makes it, like, what about it makes it fragile?
1: It's openness. Um, and it's um, often can be more fractious um, it's not as effect- efficient and effective so if you look at Nazi Germany when the when Hitler came into power and people were looking for a strong man democracy just could not deal with the crises right it's slow um, there's lots of fighting and bickering it was just a disaster and people were like okay the democracy is not working we need a strong man to come in and and fix it and um, usually on top of that you have a narrative about there was this one time things were great and were good right now they're horrible and things are horrible and those people did it right so you have an enemy internal and external and so and that they're the strong man that's going to swoop in and fix things.
0: So you're saying even in the democracy, there's the enemy internally and externally, or you're saying yeah. that's in reference to authoritarianism or the strong?
1: That's the, the authoritarian uses these um, purported enemies. What they're, they're usually associated with convenient enemies like um, immigrants, of course, and vulnerable minorities. Um, you don't target majorities. <laughs> so you find them, and they are the ones who are going to fix things, and and they are going to vanquish those enemies, and restore um, the state to greatness that has been lost because of those people, right? And that's what Putin's doing, right? Erdogan um, in Turkey, that's what he did. Modi in India, etc. We could just go on. It's it, they use a very similar playbook. It has to be adjusted to each place where they're at
0: um, so yeah well you mentioned about democracy being very slow with the checks and balances you can definitely like see that happening or like rolling out with uh the u.s and china where like, china is a strong man they can get a lot of stuff done in a short period of time compared right. to the u.s it takes a lot of time just for this right. uh the legal things to get hammered out before we can even begin doing anything yes yeah it's exactly. definitely very evident
1: yeah exactly
0: Well, going into that, so mentioning about the, going back to the authoritarianism in the U.S., like, Mm -hmm. from my knowledge in history, like, authoritarianism Mm -hmm. is always influenced by the the role of, like, a religion, it could be an actual religion, or it could be, like, a movement, as in, like, liberalism and all this, so what is your opinion on the role in religion in authoritarian governments, and also within, like, actually, first, just I'll ask that question a, bit, a follow-up after.
1: Okay. Um, well, religion can be very useful. Um, well, one, because a lot of these uh, dictators, most of them are, are from the right, not all of them. I mean, we have uh, Venezuela and um, Cuba, um, China, that's from, from the left, but they're different, although sometimes they will use nationalism. Those from the right, um, they are usually nationalist movements, um, whether they're ethnic, usually of an ethnic national variety, right? They're exclusive, right? You have the people, the nation, that belong to the nation. Um, so, Poland, for example. So, to be a member of the nation under the Law and Order Party, that's the Conservative Party, the right party that's in Poland now, you have to be both Polish, ethnically Polish, and you have to be Catholic. So, to be a member of the nation, the people, the right kind of people. You have to be both of those things. So religion is usually part of that identity, um, so it's usually a lot going to come along with it, but it also confers legitimacy on the the authoritarian wannabe or the th- authoritarian who's trying to justify his or, or maintain his power. Um, and, you know, they become the savior of not just the nation, but of the religion. And it adds a layer of uh, of unity and unifies people. Um, it confers uh, legitimacy and a, a kind of um, a sacredness or, or importance on this leader as the person who's protecting the, the religion. Um, and also religion, an alliance with the church can be it's very useful so if you look at uh, putin his alliance with the orthodox christian church they made a a bargain um putin's obviously not a very pious person right he probably doesn't care at all about the orthodox church and but he uses the church and the church helps him um uh, maintain power right they they are on Putin's side and so they are advocating for for Putin um, and and they confer legitimacy on him and also that he's a defender of the faith and and so these things are really useful for for Putin and then he gives the church um, power and and wealth also you know the dovetailing with the internal enemies the gays right they're using that right it's a western infiltration of uh, this gay ideology and so it's a part of the western plot and so it's you have an enemy that you need the strong leader for to to vanquish so that Russia can be great
0: Rise back to its glory Yeah,
1: rise back to its glory as an empire which he's working very hard yeah. on
0: Well, we'll see how that goes Hopefully yeah. not in good but we'll see Yeah. Um, how do you think religion and just these movements have impacted the US Revolution or the American Revolution back in the I don't know what that was?
1: Um, the revolution well the Church of England it wasn't a, the revolution was for for you know, it started over the taxes and you know, taxation without representation and tyranny. Um, some of which tied to the church and th- this debate over having bishops in, um, in the colonies kind of led to uh, a rebellion that most of the colonists who were not Anglican um, Certainly did, And even a lot of the Anglicans didn't want that, right? Just tyranny, the fear of tyranny, and then that they were going to establish the Church of England over all of the, the colonies. When they were, they were established in Virginia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Georgia, but they didn't have a strong grip in, I think, Georgia and South Carolina. So but you had a diversity of Protestant denominations, and there were some Catholics and a few Jews um, but that diversity, um, that obviously a lot of people were alarmed at having any bishops come from, from England. So in that way, that did play into the revolution. But what the revolution gave to, particularly um, in Virginia and, and other states, but I focus on Virginia, is you know, these ideals of, of freedom and equality, um, and the, the revolutionary ideals and so that played into the disestablishing religion so that therefore everyone could have equal religious um, freedom. So it gave them that radical change that they needed to reform everything, create a republic, and also est- established religions aren't compatible with republics In for those who were trying to disestablishment, dis- dis- disestablish um, religion that was Part of their argument. It was more complicated,
0: but we'll simplify it. We'll get back to this when I ask you about your book. Okay. But if you could go back in history, where would you go and why?
1: Um. <laughs> so hard. <laughs> there would be so many interesting times to go back. Um, as a female, it probably wouldn't be good. Some might be too traumatic. Like I don't think I could handle Nazi Germany. Although I'm curious as to what it would be like. What would it be like under Hitler? Um, but I'm not sure I could handle that. Um, so probably um, if I could go back to a Renaissance Florence and see, watch Brunelleschi build his dome, and then Leonardo was there, of course. And yeah, that would be so... I think that would be wonderful.
0: So that's the answer, Florence? Yeah. Well, that's a good answer, good answer. So I, I, I was going through like a little research before this conversation, and I noticed that you studied abroad in Macedonia a while ago or not too long ago but what made you choose this as opposed to uh, like one of the more glorious like oh Spain or any other one like oh I love Spain
1: (laughs) I would have jumped on that (laughs) I love Spain um so I'm studying the former Yugoslavia the breakup of Yugoslavia and the war in Bosnia and the Bosnian genocide uh and it was at a time that was too close to the war for me to go and study abroad in Bosnia itself. And ASU has a program here, um, the Malikian Center, um, the Russian and Eastern European Center. And they had a program for to study these the languages and also to go study those languages in Macedonia. And then I also applied to the study abroad program. Which this is very close. Uh, Macedonia is part of the former Yugoslavia, and it's just south of, of Bosnia, and it's you know, and Serbia is on its uh, on the border. So it's the closest I could get to Bosnia without being in Bosnia. And the languages are similar, the cultures similar. They're Slavs. They're Orthodox Christians, um, and so that's what I did in preparing to go for my PhD to study. Um, uh, the former Yugoslavia, and also its connection to the Holocaust, but that's a more complicated um, section. So I went there and um, then had to come back and learn Serbo-Croatian. Yeah. <laughs> must be, I'm
0: guessing that was pr- probably pretty hard. Yes, yeah. very,
1: very difficult. They're, they're both Slavic languages, but the Macedonian, the grammar, is like Spanish, so that's a much easier transition. Um, but Serbo-Croatian is like Russian, and the grammar is completely different, even though the words are the same, and a lot of the words are the same, not all. So it's yeah, yeah, yeah it's a lot.
0: You mentioned when your PhD thesis or dissertation was regarding the U- the wars in Yugoslavia. Like, mm-hmm. what specifically? Was like, is there a specific area you were targeting and that you're interested in, or just as a whole the wars in Yugoslavia?
1: Well, it was. Um, I focused mostly on Bosnia. Uh, but I did, you know, had to understand the the whole history of that region and that conflict. Um, but I did focus in on, on Bosnia, the war there, and the, the genocide. And I also related it to the war, um, the Holocaust. There were camps, there were concentration camps there. And the one that I studies is Jasenovac, which is in Croatia. Um, and at that camp, the... Fascist Croatian Ustasha ran that particular camp, and they killed um, Jews there. You know, the, mostly because Germans wanted them to, um, but they mostly killed Serbs. And so this hatred between the, the Serbs, who are Orthodox Christians, and Croats, who are Catholic, they're both they're both Slavs, um, speaking a very similar language. Um, since they broke up, they're trying to make their languages even different. When they were in Yugoslavia, they tried to make them similar. If you understand one, you can probably understand the other one. But anyway, the, so it was in leading up to the genocide in the Bosnian War, that camp and the memory of that camp played a really important role in the Serbian national identity and the Serb um, play against the, the Croats. right? And they could claim that the Croats were um, inherently genocidal and they're going to come and, and uh, kill us again right and the coast of Yasinovac haunts us right and so it was leading up to these tensions and the hatred that exploded and led to the breakup of Yugoslavia so it's relating the, that memory with the, the war
0: in modern time is this like hatred between these countries still around Are they still like vilify
1: uh, everyone Yeah, It's it's probably, it's not looking good at the moment, and it doesn't help that Putin's stirring the pot. Um, Serbia and Russia have always had this close relationship. Um, there are lots of, of, of Slavs in that that region, and a lot of them are, are Orthodox uh, Christians. Not all of them. Poles are, are Catholic. Croats are Catholic. But... Um, a lot of the others, you know Bulgarians are Slavs, and they're also orthodox christian but for for reasons that are too far to go into, they've always kind of seen Serbia as their little brother, right and so but Putin is also trying to stir the pot in that region again, and then I don't think from the war there's never been a a recognition or Any of guilt for what happened and a lot of Serbs not all of them, you don't need all you only need a like you only had in Nazi Germany it was 37% of were Nazis, Mm -hmm. belonged to the Nazi party, so you you only need a small a pretty large minority to believe this to believe that they didn't commit genocide uh, against the um, Bosniaks, right? These were the Bosnian Muslims who weren't Muslims until the war, right? Um, now I forgot where I was going. I had a point I was making. What point was I making? Now I forgot. Sorry. Nah, all
0: good, <laughs> no. I'm curious, what, is, what constitutes a Slav? Is it based on your region? Is there like some ethnic background to this? What, what would be yeah, the case?
1: Yeah, it's well, I, um, they're probably genetically related to each other. Like the Slavs, you know, came into the Balkans, I believe, in the seventh and eighth century. Um, but they're also so in Russia and, and all of Eastern Europe, they they um, colonized those the regions. But they're all speaking a Slavic language. Um, you they usually have a pretty distinct look, and most of them are very attractive. Um, So uh, there probably is some genetic component, but it's, you know, it's uh, an ethnic identity and the language and the culture that distinguishes them from the peoples that they, that live around them and amongst them.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. Moving on to your book now, do you mind talking about a little bit about the unlikely alliance and also the disestablishment of religion in Virginia?
1: Yeah. Um... So, hopefully, I will have it done next year. Um, so, it's on the, what happened in Virginia right after the Revolution or the, the Declaration of Independence. When Virginia de- declared independence, um, it's separate from the, um, the alliance or the Congress, the Continental Congress. So, and they had a convention in 1776. And a and Madison was there. He played an important um, role. But it, from that point on, um, from this article that they put in the Virginia Declaration uh, of Rights for all men to have equal rights of conscience, it, well, it said free, the um, equal free exercise of religion according to their their conscience. And Madison and the others in an alliance, um, he, well, he had others, you know, Jefferson and, and other Anglicans who weren't, were Anglicans who would have, were ready to disestablish their own religion, essentially. Um, but they also made an alliance with the Presbyterians and the Baptists in, in Virginia to, from then on, disestablish religion and establish equal religious freedom in, in, in this place. And it's a really unique and interesting um, alliance. Um, the Baptists were probably more um, religious or zealous in their, their religion than the, the Presbyterians. I mean, Madison went to the Presbyterian um, College of New Jersey, Princeton. Um, oh, it was, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, um, Witherspoon, who was the president at the time, was, came from England. He brought the Scottish Enlightenment with him. But it was a a Presbyterian college at the time, and so he was. Even though he's Anglican, he was educated there and exposed to the Enlightenment. And a lot of those people that he was, were his classmates, um, were in Virginia as well, and they were steeped in the same Enlightenment um, ideals. Um, And but it wasn't until after the war um, that Madison Jefferson was in France was able with the help of these. the Baptists and the Presbyterians and other Quakers and all of the other dissenting, religious dissenters, to pass Jefferson's um, bill for um, establishing religious freedom. And so it's, it's that story.
0: So how far along are you in this process?
1: Um, I have, for most of the chapters, I have a draft. I have three chapters that are really rough and then a lot of polishing that needs to happen between now and my goals—the end of next summer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What's it like writing a book? Is that a very—it's uh, a lot of work. Yeah, a lot of <laughs> I thinking, I thinking,
1: yeah. Yeah, I, and yet I had to do years of research prior to. It. I actually researched for all of the states and their fight over religion and religious um, freedom, and um, but that was just way too big of a project, and so I think the most important one is Virginia, and I narrowed it down.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So now for the unlikely alliance, what w- what is that book regarding? Or yeah, really?
1: that is the unlikely alliance. Is these rationalist uh, Jefferson and Madison who allied with oh, okay. Baptists and Presbyterians to establish religious freedom. So and, these two books are and disestablish religion.
0: These two books are pretty related. Then they're I mean. the same. Oh, oh okay. I yeah. oh, my apologies. Yeah, okay. Also, uh, I I read that you are interested in the idea of liberty of conscience. What did, what is that what does that mean?
1: Um, well, the phrase really um, took off after the Reformation, after Martin Luther, 1517, right, His 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door and, and kicking off the Protestant Reformation, and that broke up um, the unity of the Roman Catholic Church in Europe, right, so Christendom, you know, um, splintered, and right, so you have the Protestants versus the Catholics, and then Protestants fighting amongst themselves, and... And a le- that led to a lot of the conflict um, in in that that region. And in response to a lot of the, not just the religious violence and discord between Catholics and Protestants, and then within the Protestants, you had people beginning to argue for religious toleration. And a lot of them, well, even Luther himself, right? So he appealed to his conscience. I don't know if you're familiar with this when he's. Um brought before um, the Holy Roman Emperor at um, the Diet of Worms. Um, he said that you know when they told him to recant his beliefs, he said in conscience, he can't. Um, I stand here, I can do no other. That's whether he actually said that. we don't know. But so this idea of conscience and the liberty of conscience, uh, Luther kind of religged on his religious freedom thing or religious toleration way far away from religious freedom but in the those people that began to argue that we should rather than religious uniformity we should tolerate at least some religious freedom right and it, and it grew it took like 200 years before we get to the uh, uh, eight, late 18th century and Virginia right? establishing religious freedom this is toleration is a different thing it was a hard one fight so you saw this idea of liberty of conscience kind of taking hold, um, and so it—it's only for thought. And then you see the Inquisitions going away, right? The Inquisition is about, you know, having an unorthodox belief, and being told you have an unorthodox belief, and not changing your mind, and then you're brought before the Inquisition, um, and tried, and the punishment—burning uh, at the stake. Um, So eventually that idea was, okay, you can have liberty of conscience, which is just you're having your own beliefs. That doesn't mean free exercise. It doesn't mean anything else that you'll have equality or that you can run for office or any of these other things. So it's only a freedom of thought. And then that kind of later um, you get uh, the idea that, well, to really, have freedom. You need to exercise your religion, and then later it turns into the rights of conscience, which people use it in different ways. But it kind of encompassed all of those things, all these rights related to religion and the freedom to think for yourself and choose your religion or not.
0: This so this sprouted into like freedom of religion, is what you're saying? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting.
1: Isn't that? Yeah, it's a 200-year process. Yeah. but it yeah.
0: worked out in the end, though. Yeah. What is the favorite class you've taught over your uh,
1: preferring There's a class. lot of them I, I love taught. I, I love the totalitarian class. Um, but I have to say my favorite one was, I was a graduate student, um, and I taught a course, a graduate level, not a graduate level course, but it was a, um, an upper division course on the wars in Yugoslavia, and the breakup of Yugoslavia. And I had... Like eighteen students. It was just a wonderful class, right? So it's small and they had this research projects and um, it was it was a lot of fun. But, you know, after that you have you, your classes are always bigger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when it's smaller it's you know, it's you can do a lot of things that you can't do with the larger classes.
0: Yeah, it's definitely much more intimate as well. You can actually get to yeah, know the people in the yeah, class. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and you can actually have debates and discussions, and hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. What about uh, your favorite books then? What What is your book that you'd recommend? What is your favorite book? The one that's taught you the most, or um, the most impactful?
1: Well, I, from when I was younger, some of my favorite books and stories are, which I re- only realized lately, they they both deal with the French Revolution, but one of the Seventeen eighty nine French Revolution and the other one the eighteen thirty. Um, so, um, Les Mis is one of my favorite stories, and I think I can watch the play and the. I haven't read the book in years, but it's I just always have loved that. And then A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, um, that dealt that was a story in the French French Revolution, not the eighteen thirty French Revolution. So. I always love those, and probably someday I keep thinking I'm going to reread them again. Who knows? Um, And then uh, Pillars of the Earth is another favorite. It's about, um, it's fictional, but it's set in in Europe in the the, the Middle Ages and the building of cathedrals, and it's a lot of drama. It's like this soap opera, and it's really cool, and I love that book. It's one of my favorites.
0: What was this called? Sorry. Pillars of, Pillars of the Earth. Okay I'll check it out. Yeah. What uh what like why do you think people should study history? I mean obviously you're a history yeah. professor. What like what reason behind that and what caused you to be a history professor?
1: Um you're probably not going to believe this but when I was an undergrad I didn't take any history courses. <laughs> I thought yeah it was n- names and dates. I'm like oh how boring I I took all kinds of political science, all kinds of philosophy, social science, everything. I just loved it, humanities. Um, But I thought history was something else. I was wrong, uh, but I learned kind of um, late. Um, History is so important. Um, Well, one, it's interesting. It's just fascinating. And two, I mean, if we're ever gonna learn anything, one, we need to get history right, um, which is a big problem now. Um, some, a lot of people abuse history, right? Because if you control the past, you control the present, uh, which is another reason you, people should know it, right? So you recognize when people are trying to um, distort history for their own ends. Um, um, but again, I think understanding how... So, for example, not just genocide, but conflict and even the religious conflicts, the, the ethnic conflicts, uh, or other kinds of conflicts, these horrible things that humans do to each other, um, we can't run as experiments. All we can do is look to the past, and if we try and look at it honestly, maybe we can learn something and stop eventually repeating it, right? We keep repeating it, and it's heartbreaking, <laughs> yeah.
0: I have two more questions for you. So yeah. I, uh, I was do, as I was doing more research on you. I noticed you do some ballroom dancing. What got you started with that? I want to hear your like opinions yeah. on it as well.
1: Um. Well, I always loved dancing, and I was in ballet and then a gymnast. And yeah, but when I came back from Macedonia, I was there for eight months. I would have been there longer, but um, anyway, long story. I had to come back early. Um, Albanians and conflict with any and uh so when I came back and I was in grad school and started studying for my PhD I took courses on salsa right I, you can take you know after what is it 15 credits you can you not know, you pay the same yeah. so I took the two credit these dance um class um courses and I, I love salsa and so I did salsa for years and then um I started doing ballroom. I had a, a partner, and we started competing with ASU ASU Sun Devils. I assume that they're, hopefully they're still going, and so we would go and compete um, for the ASU Sun Devils. It was so much fun. Um, and then after that, when I graduated, I still did um, ballroom, and I'm still doing that at Energy Dance Studio in yeah. Tempe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so much fun. And, uh, it's great exercise, and
0: yeah. Yeah, Yeah, well, that was a great answer. Yeah. Actually, I, I, I lied to you. I actually have two more questions now. Oh, that was okay. the first one. But now, um, I actually just forgot one of the questions. Oh, actually, no. Um, if you were in my age, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to yourself? Like if you were in my position, what would you tell yourself to live a better life or from um, the things you've learned?
1: One, I would say do what you love, because otherwise, you're going to be miserable. Um i I love what I do, and I have no regrets um, on that. I mean, I would like to make more money, but I, I prefer doing something that, that I love because I had friends who really I think regret they went for making more money and they they hate their jobs and they're 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 miserable. so that's one. Um, it took me a I did change majors several times, so it took me a while to figure that out. I eventually said. Stop. I'm, got to, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do the thing that I love. And so that's a big thing. Um, also, when you're young, I mean, have fun. It goes by quickly. Just um, another reason why I keep dancing. It's, I mean, it's great exercise, and um, there's so much in the world to do and, and see. Don't limit yourself. Yeah, I think that's pretty much. I wish I was wiser, but sometimes you have to just learn lessons yeah. and <laughs> some bad dating choices and other such things.
0: But that's I mean, life, you know. Yeah, you gotta yeah, experience yeah. it. Yeah. What you said about dancing—that's actually like my the exact phrase that my mom my grandmother used to say about mm-hmm. dancing. That dancing makes you feel young, and that's what kept her alive for so long. Yeah. Sadly, she just recently passed away, but she oh, had I'm the same. That. That's yeah. okay. But she had the same like view that oh yeah like. Dance it keeps you young. It's exercise. It's good thing. So yeah, maybe I, I yeah. might pick yeah. that up someday.
1: Yeah, you'd probably love salsa. Yeah. Dance, so it's fun. Yeah. It's a social dance. I do competitive ballroom now, so yeah. which is different, um, but it's also social and it's tons of fun.
0: Yeah, yeah definitely. I, I've been looking into. It. I haven't ever pulled the trigger, but yeah, maybe one day. Finally, what is the meaning of life for you? What is your purpose in life? What is like? How do you live a good life?
1: Um. One of my research, I think, gives me a lot of meaning, and the and teaching, of course. Um, you know, one I think it's important trying to understand, you know, the past and try and figure out how we can stop doing these horrible things to each other as human beings. That gives me a lot of meaning, and then also sharing history. I love history, and then to share it with students, I feel very um, fortunate to be able to do that. So that gives me um, a ton of of, um, meaning and purpose in in my life. And dancing is the other part. And then my friends, of course, and family. uh, Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you very much for this conversation. It was very fun and informative. Thank you. Thanks for
1: having me on. Of course. Hopefully everyone will enjoy it and learn something. I mean, I I
0: learned a ton, so I'm sure other people will learn as well. Great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Before we go our separate ways... I want to share a quote by Albert Einstein. The world is a dangerous place to live, not because of the people who are evil, but because of the people who don't do anything about it. If you like this podcast, then please give my channel five stars on your preferred podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time.